Hope you're doing well this morning. We're glad to have you with us today uh, at Bridge. Um, if you are relatively new, my name is Paul Kemper. I'm one of the pastors here at church, at the church, and we're glad to have you with us today. Um, I am excited to continue our True False series this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Colossians and just kind of put a placeholder in there. If you don't have a Bible with you, please, I encourage you to take one of the ones out in the seat pockets underneath the seats in front of you. You can use it. If you don't have a Bible in a, in a translation you understand, take it home. Okay, if it has a little bridge uh, tag on the front of it, just take a black marker and just cross it out if you want to keep it. It doesn't matter. Um, We actually uh, give those to you and offer those to people that don't have Bibles. We fully believe that the Word of God is the thing that changes our life. And if you were here last week, you heard me talk about that a little bit with the True False series. That's how we kicked off the True False series. What is True False? It's basically four weeks that we're going to be asking a lot of different questions about Christianity. Questions that a lot of people have probably asked over the years. Maybe you've heard these questions. Maybe you didn't know how to respond to them. Each week we're trying to respond to questions that we have found have been pretty common about the Christian faith and uh, give you an opportunity to engage with them, an opportunity to connect with people about it. We know Jesus encouraged questions. If you look at the Gospels, you see over and over again that Jesus continued to connect with people through questions. Very infrequently did you see Jesus just look at a situation and go, This is what you need to do. Many times he would go up to someone and say, well, there was this situation and this guy and there was this farmer and he would just tell stories or he would ask questions. And in the midst of asking questions and telling stories, it helps the individual get to the actual uh, issue in their heart or the situation in their heart. So question asking is very important in the Christian faith as well as other things that we live in or have part of our life. uh, Questions need to be welcomed. I think it's an encouraging thing and it's an important thing for us to be able to, as believers, as Christians, if you're here today as a believer, to ask questions. And if you're not a believer, it's even more important for you to ask questions, which, even, which is even more important than that, is that we have to be willing to answer questions, to not be intimidated by questions, uh, to not you know, push someone to the side because they have questions, uh, because it was only an answer that worked when I was a little kid doesn't work anymore when I'm older. When my kids get older, because doesn't work anymore. Why, mom? Why, dad? Because. Well, it doesn't work when we're older. And when we really think about it and we look at what we believe as Christians, we would know that Jesus himself does not shy away from asking those questions. So I hope this morning you're willing to ask some questions and I hope you're willing to answer some questions as well and not be afraid to say you don't know. You know, there's nothing wrong in this world with saying you don't know the answer to something. Just say you'll go find it with somebody. And that's totally okay. Um, So last week we looked at, is the Bible just a good book? And we talked about basically, is the Bible the inspired word of God? And I gave you a lot of information with a lot of details. And uh, I hope hope some of that sunk in. Um, I want to encourage you today, if you like to take notes and you don't have any notes with you, uh, you can use one of the little message notes in the seat pockets in front of you. It says notes on it or message notes. Please use that. You're welcome to use that. We also have little notebooks that are available for $2 back on the Welcome Center that you're welcome to get one of those as well. But you may want to take notes through some of these because there is a lot of information through some of this. Uh, but last week was, is the Bible just a good book? Today, we're going to ask a different question. And the question is this, are Christians just a bunch of hypocrites? Are Christians just a bunch of hypocrites? Um, Wow, what a relevant question, I think, for not just today, but since as long as I can remember. Why are we asking this question? Because a lot of people I have heard and I have known over the years have either said this or genuinely have believed this. 
I wonder if I did a survey this morning with just a show of hands, how many of you, maybe you've either thought this at some point in your life or you've heard someone say something to the tune of this, something like this. Christians, man, they're just a bunch of hypocrites or hypocrites. Anybody ever here? Hands up. Okay, a lot of people say Christians are just hypocrites. Why do people say this? Well, there's two things that I want to talk about briefly as to why I think people say this. Talk about them briefly, and then we're going to talk about maybe the answer that would be appropriate for this this morning. Uh, the first thing, and one of the reasons why I think people say this, is false assumptions or expectations. Okay, And this is what I mean by a false assumption or an expectation. That for some people, there's an expectation or an assumption that Christianity equates to perfection. When you become a Christian, you have no problems. When you come a Christian, everything that you do is supposed to be godly, and everything that you do is supposed to be holy, right? You know what I'm talking about? Anyone ever have people that say that in their lives? I grew up with people around me sometimes, friends, with this unbiblical approach to Christianity. Like, I'm not talking about, like, like gross sinful negligence. I'm talking about, like, you know, um, something silly, you know, like doing something at the lunch counter, or, you know, not picking something up for somebody, or making a decision to, you know, someone drops their food in front of me, and I just walked around, and someone said, what do you mean, man? You're a Christian. And I was like, what? Like, and those are, like, condemning things that people think when you come to Christ, everything needs to look perfect. Now, I think if I did a show of hands today, we would hopefully agree that that is not true, okay? And if you think that's true, then you are deceived, okay? Because if you are a Christian this morning, you know that you're not perfect, okay? That there are things that you wrestle with. So false assumptions is real, okay? This is something that we need to address, but that is not the gospel message at all. Actually, the entire gospel message is that mankind can never be good enough, God doesn't wait for us to get good enough so that he saves us. He saves us when we were never able to be good enough. That's the whole message of the gospel. So to say Christianity equates with perfection in the beginning is not right. And Jesus doesn't save us because we're good. He saves us because we could never be good enough. And so we start from a place where we're messed up. We're really messed up. Okay, so if you could imagine getting saved goes from, you know, you're really messed up to now you're perfect in a moment. Uh, I don't know anybody like that. I've never met anybody like that. So when some people believe that from false assumptions or expectations, um, that's des- definite, excuse me, definitely a recipe for failure. That is not what God's intent was. The idea of Christianity being associated with perfection when someone gets saved is really false, and it's not a good understanding of how Christianity works and a relationship with Jesus works. So that's the first reason. Here's a second reason, which I think is a little more common. Personal experiences and observations. Okay, why do people think Christians are just, excuse me, just a bunch of hypocrites? because of their personal experiences and their observations. I've heard many people say, I would never go to church. Why? Because those Christians, man, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Do you know what they say? Do you know what they do? Do you know they come in on Sunday morning? I've seen people do things on Sunday, and then they go home, and then they do this, 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 and this. Do you see this? Do you see that? And people look at different expressions of what Christians do, and because of their own experience, they discredit the whole thing because of what they've observed in other people's lives. Now, It's not difficult to find examples of professed Christians who don't represent Jesus well. And all you need to do is look around you. All you need to do sometimes, honestly, is look in the mirror. Um, I don't need to look around me sometimes to find people that don't represent Jesus well. I just need to look at myself sometimes and see that I don't always represent Jesus well. This is truth. This is where I live. Now, there are extremes Okay, there are extremes, but we live in a culture where people are looking at what we are professing. 
Okay, we say Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins for all men. And as a result of that, the spirit of the living God, the divine holy power of the spirit of the living God dwells inside of us and calls us to live in relationship with God, to grow in relationship with God. It means we're no longer the old person, we're the new person today. So the world can hear this in different things, in different ways. The question, I think, and it's a valid question that they can ask themselves, do we look like new people? Do we live like new people? Do you and I look and live like new people, or do we just feel like we're still the old person with a Jesus stamp on us? Because I can tell you that when that happens hypocrisy screams very, very loud. And I'm not here this morning to point a finger because I know if I did that, there's three pointing back at me. But I know over the course of my life, I can look at different times and I can look at, less, I can look at times in the last week. I can look at times in the last 48 hours. I can probably look at times in the last 24 hours if I'm trying to really be intentional. But, you know, the day before church, I was really trying to be holy. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> God cleanse me for everything I've done the last six days. No, that's, but the reality of it is if we're looking on ourselves and being authentic, we are going to see things about our lives that don't necessarily look like Jesus. And the world is watching. The world watches this. At the national level, it's very easy to see this. People use Jesus or relationship with Jesus to promote self-gain sometimes. I'm saying, not saying all national people do that, not at all, but people can weave things in like money and personal agendas with the intent to manipulate. There are people in this world that have been burned badly by people that use Jesus for their own self-gain. I used to work with someone, and some of you heard this story many years ago, whose parents were very low-income people, and they gave tens of thousands of dollars to an online, or to a, not online then, to a public preacher, a televangelist years and years and years ago, who then squandered it and then went to jail for all of the the things that he squandered. And because of that, to this day, 25 years later, he still will never set foot through the doors of a church. Because someone who professed the name of Jesus used that authority to manipulate people. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. That's what they think. It's interesting how a lot of the wealthiest pastors in our country tend to preach a message of prosperity, which begins with you giving them money. I think that that's interesting how that that works. I'm not saying that all of it is that case, and I'm not making a broad-brushed comment to everybody, but it is kind of interesting that some of the wealthiest leaders and preachers in the, in the, the country actually do focus on step one, give me your money. You know, and you'll get your special blessing kind of thing. Now, those are extremes, and not everybody is like that. But you can certainly see by looking at our nation and the way that we communicate today and media that there is a lot of opportunity for people to look at Christianity with a level of cynicism. Would you agree with that? I hope you would agree. Self-gain is a big thing. The second one is failures, okay? And what I call categorized failures uh, are people that, who begin well, but then they lose their way. Okay, they start with good intentions, they're genuine, but at some point something happens and they end up falling. We call these scandals many times in the church and we are familiar with them. I'm sure if you thought about it at a national level, you could probably think of examples over your lifetime or something that got public that involved a scandal where maybe there was a pastor or a leader or an entire denomination perhaps where there were scandals or abuse Things like that that you can go, wow, is the whole thing a sham? Or is there more to this story? Wow, it's difficult. 
I wish I could say it only starts and stops at the national level, but it doesn't. It goes local. It goes to our backyards. It's in our church today. It's in our homes today. And skeptics love this stuff. You don't need to be a skeptic just looking at the television. You could be living next door to someone who's watching you instead of watching the TV. Skeptics love this kind of stuff. It's like red meat to hungry lions, that they look and expect something, and they get something slightly different, and as a result, they throw out the whole thing. And they're like, this Jesus thing is not legitimate. Why is the church full of hypocrites in their minds? Well, it's not, I believe. And we're going to talk about that in a few words, in a few minutes. But one of the quotes that I heard, uh, which I think is really pretty powerful, um, was written by a 20th century priest. His name was Brenning Manning. And some of you maybe have heard of this. It's a pretty popular quote, and it says this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Pretty powerful. We proclaim truth with our voices, and we live a lie with our lives. I'm not saying we all do this. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying if we want people to fully understand the authenticity of the gospel, it needs to be demonstrated by the way that we live. That's all he's really saying here. This is not a rebuke for the church, but I think it is a challenge for us. So the question really, are Christians just a bunch of hypocrites? Well, I already briefly said, no, I don't believe that that's true, but I'm going to explain what I mean by that. There are a lot of things we can acknowledge that Christians do that don't always represent Jesus well to the world. That's obvious, not just to the world, but also to each other. You know, um, I've been in this role as the pastor of Bridge for now. Um, I'm going into my 10th year. Next year will be my 10th year. Um, and uh, wow, it's not just the way that we interact with people outside the church. It's the way people interact with people inside the church that I look back and I go, like, Jesus, you still love us. <laughs> wow. Like, it's pretty incredible when you see some of the things that we hold on to that we shouldn't necessarily hold on to. And I go, you know, we want the truth of God. And God says, okay, if you want to walk across, you know, the world for me, make sure you walk across the, the, the aisle to your neighbor, you know, and love them. So there are some things that are legitimate. We need to remember Jesus is perfect and we are not. Uh, but we're going to talk about what I think is the one key thing that we need to pursue in our lives. The one key thing to eliminate any question of hypocrisy in the church today. Okay. After all, Christians are representations of Jesus, and Christian just kind of means little Christ. But this is the one key thing that I think would eliminate any question of hypocrisy in the church today, and the word is called sanctification. Sanctification. Now, for some of you, this might be a common word. I don't know if you use it in everyday conversation. Um, that would be weird. Um, but my brother-in-law does. You know, when we talk about it many times. Every time we get together, he finds a way to weave sanctification into our conversations. And I'm like, you're so reformed, buddy. You know, and I just kind of leave it at that. Um, but we have a good time and we joke about it. But sanctification may or may not be a familiar word to you. But I believe in my heart of hearts, it is the number one thing that needs to be the passion of every believer. Above all things, well, you mean above serving God? Yes. You mean above going to church? Yes. You mean above reading your Bible? Yes. All of those things are a result of sanctification, but sanctification is the number one passion that I think every believer should adhere to. You go, well, what is sanctification? Well, it's simply this. Sanctification means becoming like Jesus, okay? When God sanctifies us, he is transforming us 
from the way that we were to become more like his son, to look like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to grow a beard and I'm going to get really tan and I'm going to walk around and float like the pictures of Jesus. That's not what I mean by becoming like Jesus. It's not an outward demonstration of Jesus physically. It is that we look like Jesus in our hearts. It means that our character looks like Jesus more today than we did yesterday. Are you with me? You with me? Okay, that's what sanctification really is. It's the transformation, the metamorphosis that exists in the heart of every believer. When we first give our lives to Christ, we become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone be in Christ, they are what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new is what? The new is here. That's what that scripture says. The transformation begins, and then there is a whole process that includes sanctification that brings us to the end result. If salvation is the beginning and eternity is the goal, sanctification is the process. And here's a little graphic to kind of illustrate what I mean by that. Okay? This is our lives right now. Now, I don't know where your percentage is, okay? But the reality of it is the cross is the beginning of the transformation. You cannot become sanctified unless you have given your life to Jesus Christ. You cannot become changed to look like Jesus if Jesus is not invited to be the ruler and the the, the Lord of your life. It has to start with Jesus. Everything begins and ends at the cross. Everything begins. New life begins at the cross. Everything ends at the cross, meaning the death of sin and slavery ends at the cross. Everything happens first at the cross. Now, once we're at the cross, we begin our journey. We begin our pathway to eternity. And that's what that little sideways eight is. It's just infinity. It's eternity, okay? That is where we're all headed. We're all headed to eternity. This world is not going to be here one day the way that we understand it. And every one of us knows, the Bible says, it's appointed once for man to die, to live and man to die once. And eternity is going to happen for all of us. What happens in the middle? Sanctification, the transformation, the metamorphosis from where we begin to where we end. It is in this process, whether or not we are growing in sanctification, that opens up the opportunity for our culture to question the legitimacy of our faith. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, if all you do is get to the cross and you try to live the rest of your life without any change to eternity, you kind of still look like the old person that you were, but now you're claiming Jesus. And that's not attractive to the world, and basically that opens the door up for all kinds of hypocrisy. I love Jesus. And some of you maybe have known people like that, that they claim Christ, and they're walking with Christ, whatever that means, but when you look at their life, you look at their priorities, you look at everything that they do that matters to them, it doesn't look any different than what it was before They said they gave their heart to Christ. Now, different theological perspectives will, you know, will will address what that means. Some of them will say, well, it just means that they're not really, you know, surrendering themselves. Others will say they probably never were even saved because it's really hard for a dead person to become alive and to not walk in life. That's what most people would say. I believe that. I believe that if you are dead and you are made alive in Christ, you have to continue to grow. I believe that. And it doesn't mean that you are obligated. It means you are compelled to want to look more like Jesus. You are convicted to look more like Jesus. Never condemned, but you're convicted to look more like Jesus. You are wanting to spend more time with him. You get hungry for things that never appealed to you before you gave your life to Christ. 
So with me today so far? Sanctification, here's the path. Okay, so everyone has a status bar in this room, okay? Wherever you're at, 20%, 50%, 80%. If you're at 99%, I'll see you on the other side of eternity because that means your life's almost over, okay? So that's what's going to happen, okay? But here's the thing. We never get to 100% on this side of this, of this world, okay? You'll never become perfect on this side of the world. Eternity and 100% kind of go together. You cross over and you're with the Lord and he's like, da-da, everything else is great, okay? So that's what really happens. But we are on a progress bar right now, okay? So the sanctification process has two questions because you might be with me and go, okay, I'm with you, but how do I do this? Okay, and there's two things I want to share with you this morning. The first, I want you to answer, I want to ask you two questions. What is God's part in the sanctification process? And the second is, what is my part? Because they go hand in hand. Sanctification involves two pieces. It involves God's part, and it involves our part. Okay, the two of them have to go together. And it's super powerful, I mean, super important for us to understand the difference. So what is God's part in sanctification? Okay, three things I'm going to show you. One, he created the opportunity for it. He paid for it, and he provides the power. And I'm going to break those out in just a minute. Okay, I told you it's a lot of information this morning, but it's really good to go over this. He created the opportunity. He paid for it, and he provides the power. This is so cool. Here's what I mean by he created the opportunity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will for you to be sanctified. God, to be more like Jesus, so that we are in complete, restored relationship with him. It is God's will for you and I to look like his son. Isn't that cool? Think about that. It is super cool. I don't have the verse with you, but you can write down Ephesians 1.4 for you to just write down as a reference. It says, he chose in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. God didn't just make it his will for us to be like Jesus. Before the creation of the world, it was God's plan and God's intent for you and I, for those who choose to accept this this gift of grace and be transformed, to look like his son. That's really good for me to know. Because if it was never God's will, we have a problem. But when God wills something, it always comes to pass. Hear what I'm saying? Like when God says, this is my plan, this is my purpose, we can bank on that to say, if the heavenly father, the creator of all things said, it is my will that you can be like my son. I go, okay, you're a pretty strong dude. God can do anything he wants. And if his will for it to happen, then I can walk and be confident to know that it's going to happen because he willed it to happen. He's the architect. He's the builder right? He's the one that said it's going to happen. He's the one. We walk into buildings every day. I was looking at one the other day when I was driving by, uh, when I was driving this van truck and this, this architectural structure on the outside. And I remember looking at it as I drove by, I went, I don't know if I'd be comfortable walking out underneath that thing. And then I stopped and thought about it as there were cars all around the parking lot. I said, everybody else is. And I'm like, why are they comfortable walking underneath? Because the architect somehow maybe convinced the builder who convinced the permit people or whatever, that their design is actually able to support everything that's there. It was their will to show them when you build this, it will support it. You can, with confidence, walk into that building and not worrying about collapse on you. And with confidence, they walk in and out because they know the architect designed it in a way so that it was meant to do what it was supposed to do. Same thing with our faith. Jesus Christ came, died, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and the Spirit of God dwells in us because it is God's will, God's design, and his fingerprint is on this world to show us that it's his will for us to look like his son. Isn't that cool? Like, you can be confident in that. 
Don't be confident in you because you're going to let you down. I'm going to let me down. Be confident in Christ. Be confident in God's will because it was his will that we should be sanctified. He created the opportunity. The second thing is he paid for it. He paid for it. This is super powerful. Galatians 3, 13 through 15 says, look, Christ paid the price to free us from the curse that the laws in Moses' teaching bring by becoming cursed instead of us. What is it saying? Well, you know, the law said, do these things. And when you violate these things, you recognize what a sinner that you are. And Christ came to free us from the curse or the consequence of not being able to keep the law. Scripture says, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Christ paid the price so that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to all the people of the world through Jesus Christ. And we would receive the promised spirit through faith. Really, what is he saying here? He's like, not only did I intend for this to happen, like it is my will for you to look like my son, I paid the price. I took care of it. I paid it in your place. There is nothing that you have, no amount of money or value that I have or that you have that can pay the price required for us to begin the process to look like Jesus. Okay, really silly example, but yesterday, you know, with the weather being so great, I noticed that like any of the car wash places that I drove by were packed. Anybody, anybody get their car wash yesterday? Just out of curiosity. Anybody, couple, okay, people could get car wash. That's good. One of my favorite car wash places is a couple miles down the road from here. And it's got this really long <clears throat> tunnel that you go in, like you pay it. And then the little, you know, the little gate goes up. And then there's a guy that comes out with that little spray gun and they shoot the whole thing around. And then it's this long, long thing. And like they could do the pre-wash and then all those things hit your car. One of the favorite things I ever did as a kid, by the way, uh, open the sunroof, not the sunroof, but, the, but the, the, the thing inside to actually see everything. When I was a kid, it was awesome. It's hitting the windows. You go through and then they had these power dryers that dry the car going all the way through. Sanctification is kind of like a car wash in a silly way. God's intent is for you to be clean. He's the one that built the building. He builds the wash. Jesus paid the price. You pull up to that little machine there, you know, and there's Jesus, and he's standing right there. And he's like, I got you, buddy. And you're like, I'm ready to get a clean car. And he's like, I got you. And he pulls out this, you know, beautiful gold coin, sticks it in the machine, and the computer says, thank you. And then the gate goes up. Okay? He paid for your wash. Whether you walk through it or not at that point, you are entitled to a free wash to you but it cost everything to Jesus. But it was paid for. Christ paid for you and I to begin the process of sanctification. You with me? Okay, I hope. You guys with me? Hope so. Okay, I just want to make sure. Okay, he paid the price of sanctification. From the moment that gate goes up, I know I'm getting a clean car. I know it. Then I get to that first guy and he does that thing around the side of the car, right? Doesn't always do a good job at it. You know, it's kind of just, I don't know why they do that little pre-wash stuff. Then they go through and then everything happens and then they get dried on the other side. You know, I open up the door and the angels sing and it's shiny and everything like that. Sanctification is that washing process. But Jesus paid for it. He paid for it. What does it mean today? You are not entitled because it sounds like that, you know, you are worth it because of something you did. But you are now assured that you can become like Jesus because he paid the price for you to be that way. Make sense? So powerful. He paid for it. Jesus covers the cost, at which point you own the right. You are assured of it. It is guaranteed. Now, it doesn't mean that you've taken possession of it. It doesn't mean when the guy goes like this to you, 
Put the car in neutral. It doesn't mean that you put it in neutral. You might be like, nope, I don't want to do it. No, put it in neutral. You want a clean car? No, I'm just going to sit here. You have to actually do it. You have to actually grab a hold of the assurance, put the car in neutral, let the little belt start taking you through so you can actually get clean. That's our piece, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But he didn't just create the opportunity. He paid for it. The third area here that we need to know about God's part is that he provides the power. One of the most dangerous things we can do as people in this world is to think that we have the ability in our own strength to do any of this. You can't. You can't. I can't. That's why people struggle over and over and over again. That's why we struggle with the same problems over and over and over again many times because we, instead of trying to put our faith in Christ and give Christ the opportunity to transform us, we try to transform ourselves, taking the authority and the power away and trying to own it ourselves. You can't do it yourself. I can't do it myself. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Sing these songs over the years. I'm free, I'm free, but I have chains all over me when I'm singing it. What's that about? Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect. Look, see and reflect the glory of the Lord. Reflections get easier and easier to realize the more we polish something. You know, wash that car and it'll shine. Buff that car and it'll really shine. You know, I noticed this not just in my own life in a silly way, but I mean, like as you get older and like, you know, things like your hair changes and stuff, like, you know, Pastor Nick used to say it all the time when he was at the church. He's like, you know, people with a full head of hair, every time God looks at them, he doesn't see himself because he doesn't have the glory reflected over their head. So when people look at bald guys, Jesus sees a reflection of himself, you know, and it makes me laugh when I think about that. But there's some truth into that because the more that your hair follicles go away, the, you know what I'm talking about, it polishes it up. And you're like, I see more of some of you are glaring right back at me this morning. You know, I'm looking at that. Thank God I don't have glasses on because it'd be hard to see. Um, It's just silly. But the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. We do not change ourselves. God, through his Spirit, changes us. Incredibly important for you and I to remember today. No one changes themselves. Only God changes can change a heart through his spirit. Those are God's parts or responsibilities in the sanctification process. He creates the opportunity. Thank God there's an opportunity. If there was no opportunity, we could just go home. He paid for it and he provides the power to allow it to happen. So this is really like all God in that, okay? It's all God. If we were gonna use another example of a car, It's like the car is there, the power, the engine is in it, the transmission is in it, there's fuel in it, the keys are in it, it's all there. So what's our part? Our part is two things. The first part, my part in the sanctification, is to choose godly things. See, the car can be there with the keys and the engine and the transmission, and the tires, and everything, and the key, everything's already, and it's even running. We have to get in. 
We have to put our hands on the wheel and we have to hit the gas because he can't steer a parked car. God's part is he creates the opportunity. God's part, he pays the price. God's part, he gives us the power and the resource to do it. Our first part in the sanctification process is to choose godly things. This is where Colossians 3 comes into play with your finger pointed in that position. So if we can look at the first few verses of Colossians 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Look what Paul says to talking to Christians here. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That's what he's saying. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What is he saying in all this? Basically what he's saying in there, we have to choose to walk in the direction that Jesus laid out for us. The car's running, it's waiting, and there's a thousand horsepower motor underneath that hood, man. And he just wants you to get in and he wants you to start hitting the gas and putting your hands on the wheel. Don't, you know, Jesus take the wheel thing. He, he wants you to actually drive, you know, because he's the one that's driving the whole thing. But he's saying, you got to go. Choose godly things. Focus on the things that are of God and not on the things that are of man. We need to set our minds on the things that are above, meaning the heavenly, godly, holy, pure things, not on the things of the world. This is a change in mindset, like Romans 12, 2 says, about transforming ourselves by renewing our minds. We need to choose different ways of living. Now, some of you that live right here in the Lansdale area would know what I'm talking about when I'm saying that right around the corner from us is White's Road. Some of you know White's Road right across um, here. Man, that road is like the worst road in all of North Penn area to drive on right now. Like, it is horrible. Anyone ever go on that road? I mean, I drive down it and my, my car is like... I'm like, this is insane. And you know what? This is ridiculous. Every morning, in the morning, I get up, try to go to the gym, get there 6.30, quarter 7, hit the gym, in the morning. And I'm like, this is crazy. Every time I go, I'm like, my car is going to fall apart. But can I tell you, I keep driving the same stupid road every time to the gym. There are more than one way to get to the gym. And yet I still go on White's Road every morning. And every day I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going like, to have to call people one day and be like, hey, I called a mechanic. Hey, my whole front of my car fell apart. Why? Because White's Road, White's Road, go on Facebook and you have people complaining about it. When are they going to fix White's Road? And they're trying to fix it right now. They're going to pave it in the next two months in case you're wondering about that. You're welcome. Um, but it's a mess. It's a mess. Yet I keep driving on the same road. I keep making choices every morning. I come out of my house. I go to the road. I go to Allentown. I come down Allentown. I go up Valley Forge. I turn right on White's Road. I'm like, I'm gonna, my car's going to fall apart. And then I forget about it. And you know what I do when I come home? I come back. I go the exact same way in reverse. And I go down the road. And my car rattles and shakes. This is crazy. Why do you do that, Paul, if you know that it's going to damage your car? Yeah, I don't know. You know why? Because I'm a person of habit. And I do the same thing over and over and over again. Do you know what has happened over the last couple of weeks? One, I went to the gym a little bit later. And you know what happens when I went to the gym a little bit later? The construction teams showed up on White's Road. And you know what the construction teams do on White's Road? They close White's Road. So now this is the truce. I still, I'll go up to Valley Forge and I'll turn left. And I'll like, oh, put my right blinker on road close. Ah, oh! and then I have to go around and follow the detour. And they detour me around White's Road. 
My car doesn't rattle crazy. I don't feel like I'm going to lose anything in my car. My suspension is not going to fall out. I'm not going to be stranded on the side of the road. I simply took another path. Why? Because they closed the road. How does this work with our lives spiritually? How often do we keep wrestling with the same thing over and over and over again, but we never close the road? We don't close the road. We don't choose the godly thing. We choose the ungodly thing. Well, you know, I just feel good. About, oh, I just feel good right now. You know, it, I'll be honest, man. There are certain things that I have done in my life and certain things that I go that's sinful that sometimes I just, I don't care, you know? And I go like, but it just feels good. Or, or, or which is even more of, you know, a holier approach, the, the groove in the road is really, really deep. God, do you really expect me to go a different way? Yes, he does. Get out of the groove, he says, and go in a different way. Close the road. There are things in our lives that we need to choose differently to allow the sanctification process to occur. If you want to graduate from first grade to all the way to high school, you need to do the work that you're given to be promoted to the next grade. Hopefully that still happens everywhere, but that is what the point of it is. You're supposed to be able to get promoted after you do the work. And if you don't do the work and you just keep saying, well, I'm just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, you can't expect to mature. So how is it that we see people, and we have, we've seen people over the years, I've watched some people that have walked with Jesus or gave their heart to Jesus decades ago, and they're very, very, very small in their steps. Like, you can tell that there's been change, but it is a very slow and tedious process. And then there are other people that give their hearts to Christ, and within three or four years, it's like, what happened to them? Can I tell you? It has nothing to do with God's part in the process. All of those things remain the truth for both of them. The difference is whether they're choosing godly things for starters. Are the individuals prioritizing their time and making godly things the ramp to help them grow spiritually? So important for that to happen. And if we do not do that, we won't mature like God has asked us to mature to the level that God has asked us to mature. The right question is never, how far is too far? I've heard that question, especially with regarding purity and issues like that. Well, Pastor Paul, how far is too far? How do I know when I'm crossing the line? It's not even the right question. It's completely backwards. How far is too far is completely backwards. It's saying, how close can I get to the line of sin and not cross over? How self-centered can I possibly be and selfish can I be before I violate that covenant with God? That's not even the right question. The right question we should be asking is, everything that we do, does it bring us closer to Jesus or does it take us away from Jesus? That's the question we should be asking in our lives. If I'm going to participate in this, if I'm going to choose this, if I'm going to dwell on this in my mind, does it take me closer to Jesus or does it bring me away from Jesus? That way it levels the playing field and it doesn't allow legalism to get into this. Oh, well, how does that look? Well, there's some obvious things that we know are not okay. We understand that. Well, you know, is it okay for me to take, you know, controlled substances and, you know, be addicted to drugs? Obviously not. Like, that's not okay. Is it okay for me to be an alcoholic? Obviously not. Okay, well, is it okay for me to date that person? What do you think, Pastor Paul? Should I date that person? But I love them. I'm praying for them, and I'm going to win them to Jesus. Is it, does that person bring you closer to Jesus, or does that person take you away from Jesus? Very simple question, easy answer, and when you ask it that way, the answer is very clear. Well, no, they really don't. They don't make me feel closer to God. If anything, I might struggle. Time out, wrong person, move on. 
Yeah, but what if God's really, if God has predestined you, whatever word you want to use for that, if God has planned for you to actually be together with that person, he's not going to make it so that you have to become that person's missionary to date them to come to Christ. I do not believe that 100%. We sacrifice things in our lives that we think we need to sacrifice to save someone else. But really what's going on is we're thinking with our, with, we're thinking with our fleshly heart. We're not thinking with our godly heart in those situations. We need to be about measuring what we want from God first as the priority. Will it bring us closer to God or will it take us away from God? Because the goal is to look more like Jesus. So we should be avoiding things that take us down a pathway that is more detrimental to growth and move down a pathway of things that are more beneficial to spiritual growth. Now, I did mention that there are some things that are universally unhealthy, and I understand that, and I think those things are pretty easy for us to talk about. But there are some things that are a little less obvious, and I want to mention things like this because I think this is important. Looking like Jesus doesn't just mean saying, you know, choosing the good thing and and just saying no to the clearly bad thing. Sometimes it means just being available and saying, I'm going to put my foot on the gas and let you control where this is going. So, for example, choosing a path that's more grace-based than a path that's more truth-based Some of us, Jesus came in the fullness of truth and grace, okay? 100% grace, 100% truth. Clearly, every one of us in this room, I believe, if you really did an examination, would find that you're more one of the other. You're either stronger in truth or stronger in grace. You're stronger in truth. Hey, here's what you need to do. You're stronger in grace. I love everybody. You know, and that's the way it works. Those are extremes, okay? But you're stronger in one of those things. Sometimes in the sanctification process, when you become more like Jesus, what he's saying is you are really good at delivering truth. But you know what? You hurt people when you do it. You need to grow in grace. You need to grow in grace. That's part of the sanctification process. God's not saying don't be a truth person. Spirit would say you got to pull back your truth a little bit and lead with grace and then bring truth to the situation. Oh, that's hard. That's sanctification. I can't do that by myself. No, you can't. That's why we need who? Holy Spirit. So maybe it's about grace versus truth. Maybe it's about boldness versus gentleness. Oh, I'm going to be bold for Jesus. And there are some people that are seriously bold for Jesus. Some of the people you know I'm talking about. You know, you maybe bumped into people like that. You're like, wow, that person's seriously bold. I could never be bold for Jesus. That's not my personality type, Pastor Paul. Nonsense. Everybody can be bold for Jesus. In fact, we are called to be witnesses And to be filled with power when the Holy Spirit came during Pentecost to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which is just code for in your neighborhood, in your state, in your country, and in the world. That's all I was really saying there. You are called to be a witness to the world around you. Be bold. Be bold doesn't mean you have to get on a milk crate and start screaming at people at the corner street. You don't have to do that. But being bold means that when you have that opportunity to speak or you're looking, you're looking for an opportunity to speak, you can say, this is not in me. And like I've seen people literally shake at these times. I don't know. But when they do it, they realize it wasn't me that was speaking. It was a spirit giving me the wisdom to be strong and to be bold and to go, wow, what was that? And Jesus goes, you're looking more like me. You're looking more like me. Don't, don't go to your personality type as your go-to. Well, I'm just a meek person and, and I'm not able to be bold. Nonsense. If you're a quiet, gentle-hearted kind of person and you just want to you know, hug people and never share the gospel, you'll hug them all the way to hell. Just being honest. You will. All the way. You'll be like, I just want to love you, but I'm just praying for the right opportunity. I'm praying for the right opportunity. When is the right opportunity? If you're willing to be bold, Holy Spirit will show you you can speak truth into these situations And I I would rather 
It's a hard situation that I went through last week when I was made aware of something with someone unrelated to our church and I talked to someone connected to it and I said, I will get involved in that because I would much rather say something that's hard in a situation in love and have that parent come back and scream at me and tell me to go pound sand than to see something tragic happen to their kid. I'd much rather take a chance. Do I want to do it? No, no, because people around me have said, oh, you do that, this parent, blah, 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 blah. This person's going to say this. And it's like fear, 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 fear. Oh, I'll just be quiet. No, he rose from the dead. He can give me boldness to say what I need to say in grace, but bring truth. Make sense? So important for us to know this today. We need to be able to do this. Maybe it's boldness. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe, maybe you don't need boldness. Maybe you just need to calm down. Maybe you just need to dial it back a little bit. You know, you want to go ahead and just vomit Jesus on everybody. And he's like, hey, you know what? Well, you go, ew, that sounds gross. It is gross. Come on. How many times have you had people want to share your faith or share the gospel with you or someone shares with you and you're like, you're like, calm down a little bit. You're a little weird. You got to back out. Jesus wasn't weird. He wasn't weird. He was a man of truth. He was a God of power. And he loved people just the way that they were. But he wasn't weird. But I just need to share with everybody. Grow up. Tone it down. Sanctification brings us to maturity, and maturity is attractive to the world. I believe that. There's so many other areas that we could look at. I'll just touch on one more about sanctification. Maybe in your path is not about boldness versus gentleness or evangelistic versus discipling. Maybe it's about being more available for ministry to others or about being more available to ministry to your family. That's part of the sanctification process too, if you know what I mean. You know, how many times the kids grow up and all they look back at is to see moms and dad that gave 100% of their time to the church and they didn't have time for them. Is that sanctification? No. Does Jesus say sacrifice your family for all the people that are eventually, you know, of all the people you reach, maybe a small percent of them will grow and mature and, you know, they could have other people pour into their lives, but your kids will never have another dad or your spouse will have, never have another spouse as long as you're living. What does sanctification look like? It means balance. It means recognizing where truth is and walking in truth. It's so important to make sure that we are willing to choose a godly path. The second part of sanctification on our part, what's our part, is not just choosing a godly path, but it's this. Kill sin, don't corral it. We have to be willing to kill sin, and we can't corral it. What do I mean by this? Second half of Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, put to death. This is strong stuff, guys. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. I love how he says that. You used to walk in these ways. He's saying you're a new person. In the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and has put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the images of his creator. Killing sin, not corralling it, is important. It is a priority. It is paramount for you and I to grow in maturing to look like Jesus. It is hard for us sometimes to separate the difference between killing it versus corralling it. Corralling it is another way for me to say we learn to manage our sin instead of murdering it. 
We cover it up with things. We mow over it. And eventually it'll grow back again. If all you do is cut it down and you don't dig it out, it will continue to come back again over and over and over again. We don't need to deal with fruits as believers. We need to deal with roots as believers. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us and what Paul is saying through the scripture in Colossians. Don't go to the fruit. Dig out the problem and pull the problem out. When you know that you're dealing with the root issue and the root comes out, one, it's going to be messier, okay? Anybody knows, cutting the grass, you can do that in moments. Digging out the weeds, man, you might be digging a big hole and it leaves a crater in your yard. But the reality of it is once the root is taken out, it'll never grow back there again, right? You with me? You've got to kill the sin. Don't corral the sin. And we can be masters at dealing with symptoms instead of dealing with the heart issues. So many times over the years, look at my own life, look at people I've interacted with, and we say, am I dealing with the symptom or am I dealing with the root? And if we always deal with the symptom, the root will eventually regrow and we'll see the same problem happen somewhere else with someone else at another time at another circumstance. That's what happens. What I mean by this, anger issues. If you have anger issues, They are not solved by staying away from people or things that make you angry. That does not work, okay? It works for a moment, but if you struggle with anger, your problem is not every circumstance or people around you. There's something else inside of you. What is rooted in that anger? Is it pain? Is it control? Is it fear? You've got to get to the root of these things so that when the root's taken out, listen, you can have the biggest bonehead doing whatever they want in your face. And you can still not get angry about it. I'm not saying anger in itself is sinful. I'm just saying the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So people that get angry, and I'll put myself in this category, where I cross the line and go, this is not okay, this is not okay. Get to the root of this thing so that the anger is dealt with and it's pulled out and it's no longer an issue. Anger issues are not solved by staying away from the people that make us angry. Addictions are not simply solved by avoiding things that tempt us. Well, I have an addictive personality. I just need to stay away from all the things. You know what? You do it that way, You may be able to beat whatever you're staying away from, but something is going to take its place and you're going to get addicted to something else. That's just the reality of it. Got to deal with root issues because root issues will change your situation. Financial mismanagement is not solved by getting a higher paying job. I can't manage my money now, so I just wish I made more money. That'll fix the problem. No, it won't. If you can't manage $20,000, you can't manage 200. And that's the reality of it. Now, sometimes there are income problems that people need to deal with, and that's true if you don't make enough money. But the reality of it is many times people think they want to solve it by simply doing something that is a surface fruit and not the root problem. This last one I want to mention, offense. If you have offense against individuals, it's not solved by ending a friendship. It's not going to be solved by leaving a church. It's not going to be solved by moving away. It's not going to be solved by unfriending them on social media. Seriously, and being honest with this stuff. Well, if I just unfriend them, if I just move away, if I just stop talking with them, if I just do this, it'll go away. No, because the root of what causes the offense has never been dealt with. And if the root's not dealt with, it will manifest itself in another place, in another time, in other circumstances. We have to kill our sins. We don't corral our sins. And that brings us closer to Jesus. Pastor Matt, if you guys can come as we get ready to close today. Let me ask you today, where are you in the sanctification process? I just want to ask, where are you in the sanctification process today? Where are you in becoming more like Jesus? You see, I think if we're being real honest about this, we, we will know 
The Holy Spirit, if we ask him this morning, the Holy Spirit will, will very clearly reveal to us, here are the things on the path that need to change. Is it about choosing godly things for you today? Maybe, maybe that's really where you are. I mean, we only have, every one of us has 24 hours each and every day. What we give our time to, what we give our priorities to, will determine the kind of people we become. Maybe it's about choosing godly things. Maybe it's, it's bigger than that. Maybe it's about killing sin versus corralling sin. Managing the things that we know are not of God as opposed to getting them out of our life and saying, I'm done with that. It takes a lot of intentionality for us to do both of those things. But I want you to hear this morning, it's worth it. It's totally worth it. It's not ever going to be in your strength. It's going to be in God's strength. You know what's beautiful about both of those things is that if you were going to condense both of those points into one word, I would call it repentance. It begins with repentance. Choosing a new way, God's way. Saying no to sin, I'm done with this. I, I think there are I think there are TV programs that people need to delete. I think there are personal items that they need to throw away. I think there are internet services that need to be disconnected. I think there are relationships that need to be rebuilt. And the list goes on and on and on. Whatever needs to happen, are you willing to be incredibly authentic about where you are and then be aggressive. And I don't, mean, I don't mean offensive to other people aggressive. I mean, kill it and say, this is not going to happen anymore. I remember a few years ago, I used to have this, this recurring dream in my house when I would sleep. And it didn't happen all the time, but it happened a number of times and it disturbed me every time. And in the dream, there was this lion and I would sit there in my house and this lion would just walk through the house and he would just brush up against me sometimes and I would just pet the lion. And I remember in the dream, I would look at it and think, this is messed up. Why is there a lion walking through my house and he seems so docile and he seems so peaceful? And God very clearly showed that to me and said, the lion is sin and sin can't be curbed in your house. And your house isn't looking at everybody else. It's looking at you. You can pet him and he'll come up and rub alongside you sometimes, but let us never, ever, ever forget. He's always a wild animal. And one day he wants to eat you. This is truth. This is where we live as people today in 2018. This is where we've lived since the beginning, since the fall. For our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion, Peter says, looking for someone to devour. The pathway to sanctification requires us to choose godly things, requires us to kill our sin. And let's be reminded that if we do this, look at this scripture in Philippians 1.6. God is the one who began this good work in you. He began the good work in you. And I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns. What does it mean? It means as long as you stay in that driver's seat with your foot on the gas and are letting God take you somewhere, as long as you're in the car and you're moving and you're not sitting idle, you can be confident in knowing that Jesus has this. 
You can be confident and know that you might mess up and make mistakes here and there. You can be confident in knowing that it's okay if you fall sometimes, but you get up again and you go repent and you move in the right direction. And you know what happens when you do that? Two things. One, you look like most of the people that wrote this book, for example. I mean, this is a book that was written by murderers and adulterers and people that denied Jesus. All these people had sin in their lives. The sin wasn't what disqualifies you from God alone. It's our response to our sin that can continue to disqualify us from relationship with God. First thing that happens is you get to look like everybody else in a good way. The second thing is that you look more like Jesus. And we want to be looking. We want to look more like Jesus because the world needs to see genuine truth. Would you stand with me, please, this morning? I'm just going to bow my head and we're going to close with this song today. And Father, I just come before you today and I just ask this morning in Jesus' name that our minds and our hearts would be positioned towards you, that we would hear you, that we would be reminded today that we are free because of the work of your spirit. In Christ, we are free and we can stand in confidence and walk in confidence because you, you, are the one who changes us.